Let's read verses 8 and 9. Brethren, let us hear the word of God. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday and today and forever, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word this evening. Brother, we've begun a new series, which is entitled, By Grace Ye Are Saved. We are looking at the doctrine of God's saving grace, and we'll be doing that for several months to come, God willing. And we began our study of the doctrine of God's grace last week with the uh, observation that since Adam's fall in the garden, there have only been two religions in the world. God-centered and man-centered. That's it. Everything in one way or another falls into one of those categories. God-centered or man-centered. And we then considered two questions as the basis for our study. Number one, who is God? And number two, what has God done in order to save sinners? Then we considered two historical facts. First, the battle theologically that has raged over God-centered and man-centered religion uh, has raged since Genesis 3. And not since the time it was written, but since the historical fact of the fall. There has been a struggle between the doctrine of God's saving grace and men believing that they are made right with God by something that they do. And my point in saying that is that the issue of God's sovereign grace is not a modern theological debate. In its refined form, yes, uh, we have seen uh, the... uh, the intensifying of, of the debate since the time of the Reformation. But this has been a, uh, a battle that has raged throughout human history. Secondly, uh, we looked at the fact that John Calvin did not formulate what we call the five points of Calvinism. If I understand him correctly, if I have read his works right, he would have hated the thought that his name was attached to a system. We always have to look at these men in the light of the day in which they lived and what they were attempting to do. John Calvin never systematized five doctrines with his name on them. The doctrine that we refer to as the doctrine of grace and the saving Sovereign grace of the Lord um, is something that is found throughout the Scripture. And the, the modern putting together of proof texts to uh, hone these doctrines into a clearer systematic 
form did not come until the Synod of Dort, and it was the followers of Jacob Arminius who were called remonstrants. Remonstrants are those who raise a formal protest. These remonstrants formulated five points of dissent from what was generally accepted to be the Reformed faith. And the answer of the Synod to the five points of Arminianism was what we call today the five points of Calvinism. But that is a modern construction in a theological debate. So, John Calvin did not formulate those, though we certainly believe that the tenets found in each one are discovered in his writings, and they're in his writings because he mined them from the Word of God. We don't put anybody's name upon ourselves as such except the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can agree with men in theological issues and certain doctrines, and we can use certain titles and labels, but we must recognize that, that uh, especially as we go into this study, I'm not here to make an argument for some man's name. Not interested in that. We are here simply to study, God willing, the Word of God, and to see if these things be so. If they are the Word of God, this is why we believe them, and no other reason. Now, there's some principles that I want to set before us before we get into our survey this evening. This evening and next evening, next Wednesday evening, and perhaps the third, we'll see, uh, we're going to do something of a bit of a historical survey. Uh, Now, this is not my favorite way to teach or to preach, but I want us to recognize that very often the doctrine that we hold here is in many places considered to be something novel or something to be new. And one of the reasons that we take the time to look at a historical survey is not to give any any glory to men, but simply to say we find ourselves walking in the path that brothers and sisters throughout history have declared. And we simply find ourselves walking in the same understanding of the Word of God. And I think it's important in our day, especially now that there have been several uh, frontal assaults on the grace of God by men like Norman Geisler and Dave Hunt, it is important for us to take the time to read through the Scriptures carefully, attempt to look at things in their context, and when necessary, raise historical issues so that we might simply see that these are not new, fangled issues, but those that have been wrestled through to varying degrees throughout the history of God's people. Now, let me give you three principles before we go into our survey. First, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and His Word alone must be the foundation for what we believe and do. He must be exalted and not men. His word must be exalted and not the thoughts of men. I will no doubt uh, be weak and perhaps even fail at certain points to do this, but this is my desire. This is what I am aiming for, that Christ alone and His doctrine. And why? Because the Scripture plainly tells us in 2 John 9, 
<clears throat> that whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. So, brethren, it's absolutely vital that Jesus Christ and His Word be exalted. And that we do all we can to be faithful and honest with His Word, uh, even if it means certain aspects of our system, as we understand it, uh, may have questions raised about them that we can't answer. We're willing to let God be true and every man a liar. Secondly, it follows from our first point then that what men have believed, though helpful to our understanding of things, must not be our standard. Our standard is not what any of the men that I will mention believe as such. Uh, No, that's that's not the point for mentioning them. The reason we are mentioning them is because as they went to the Word of God, this is what they understood. And as we come to the Word of God, this is what we find. Not because they say it, but because God has said it, and we find what they have found. What men have said, and what systems, regardless of how good they may be, are, they must not be our standard. They may be useful in helping us understand certain things. We don't have to reinvent the wheel every generation. We don't have to go back and, and spend uh, 500 more years studying the person of Christ as the, as the early church did because uh, those theological issues have been hammered through. But we don't say just because they believe it, we believe it. We believe it because as they mind the Word of God, this is what they understood. And we're saying we agree. This is what we find as well. Thirdly, In my quoting men and history, as I will be uh, here and there throughout the next uh, couple of weeks, and then we will get into our uh, direct study of of the doctrines from the Word, Uh, I am not doing any of the three things, or at least I'm not attempting to. In my quoting men in history, I'm first not attempting to exalt myself, my library, for my reading. Now, what I mean by that is, <clears throat> as I quote various men and as I say certain things from history, I'm certainly not attempting to draw attention to the fact that I've read some history. This is not the issue. The thing is for us to be able to gaze throughout the works of God in history. When Stephen stood before his enemies, he gave a tremendous history of the work of God throughout the nation of Israel. And you will find throughout the Scriptures there are times when men have stood before others and have said, this is what God has done in history. And they would go back and they very plainly showed what the Lord has done in Scripture and related it to the day in which they lived. This is my only attempt. I am not attempting to uh, exalt literature outside of the Scripture. Secondly, under that, I'm not attempting to gain the favor or approval of men. Uh, There will be times when I disagree with men 
of, with whom we uh, have great things in common. And there will be men that we love dearly and love to read, and we print some of them. But there will be times when my own conclusions will not be in agreement with theirs, because I can't find theirs in the Scripture. So we're not here to gain the favor or the approval of men. We're here to mine the Word of God. And then finally, uh, neither am I attempting to say that all who disagree with us are lost. We're not saying that. We are saying we have given ourselves to as intense a study of the Word of God as we can in our present circumstances with the, the light that the Lord gives us and what strength and abilities He's given us. We read, we study, this is what we believe to be the Word of God and we must fervently preach that it is the Word of God. Hopefully, always with a teachable spirit and willing to, uh, to change any doctrine if we find that in the long run it is not in harmony with the Word of God. Now, we do believe that some who uh, do not believe what we believe are lost, but not because they don't agree with us, and not just because they disagree with certain aspects of what we believe, but in essentials, they deny the faith. I will not be dealing with people like that generally. We'll be talking about certain aspects of these uh, doctrines of grace. So, uh, there, w- there is variation even among those who hold uh, these particular doctrines. So, having said that, I want to read you a quote by John Gill which sums up what I've attempted to say in these principles. Gill says this, that the writings of the best men of the most early antiquity and of the greatest learning and piety cannot be admitted by us as the rule and standard of our faith. These with us are only the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. To these we appeal, and by these only can we be determined. If, therefore, the oracles of God are on our side, if we have the concurrent suffrage and the frequent and expressed declaration of the holy prophets, of Christ and His apostles, we have the best and earliest antiquity for us, and are free and far enough from the charge of novelty. It is of no great moment with us that such who lived nearest to the times of the apostles say, unless what they say agrees with their, meaning the apostles, words and doctrines. It would indeed be matter of concern to us should no footsteps, no traces of the doctrines we contend for appear in the works of the first Christian writers and would oblige us to lament their early departure from the faith once delivered to the saints. In other words, what he's saying, as he defended the faith in his day, he said, we stand in the word of God. What the prophets say, what the apostles say, what the Lord Jesus Christ said. And he was saying this in the midst of theological controversy, because he himself was being charged with novelty, with something new. 
And some of those that were disagreeing with him strongly were appealing to the early church fathers and saying, we don't find your system in the early church fathers. And his argument is that if what we're saying is found in the word of God, we would be very troubled that we don't see what we believe being taught in the first century. Not because it's like, oh, well, maybe we did come up with something. But that what a tragedy they departed from the faith in the first century. That's his point. In other words, he's exalting Christ and his word alone. So, let's begin uh, this survey this evening by saying this. We want to look first at grace in the Old Testament and grace in the New Testament. Of course, we don't have time to do um, a deep and intensive study, or we would be several months on that before we ever got to anything else. But we just want to do something of a bird's eye view to say that the, the notion of grace is to be found both in the Old and in the New Testaments of Holy Scripture. Genesis chapter 6 verse 8 tells us, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Going all the way back to as early as Genesis 6, when there was a wicked world. And the background of of Noah's story is against a wicked, corrupt, and fallen world. God, in His mercy, saved one man and his children. He was not obliged to save one. But the reason that he did was because he had made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would conquer the seed of the serpent. So God was pleased to destroy the entire existing world at that point. But in his grace, in his mercy, he saved a man and his family. Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. In other words, God had mercy on this man and upon his children. Moses is another. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. The Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. He says, You've said that uh, you've set me apart, and I'm something special in your purpose here. But you're sending me off on something I don't even know is going to go with me. You've said I've found grace in your sight. Now, therefore, he says, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. Are we really your people? And I want to know you. You've chosen me. You've said your grace is upon me. 
And he said, that is God, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. If you're not going with me, I'm not going. I don't want us to go. We want you to go with us. Why? Listen to what he says. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? How is anybody going to know that we're this set-apart people for you? For wherein may it be known, here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight, is it not that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Brethren, this is distinguishing grace. He's saying, what will set us apart from anybody on the planet? You've said you've been gracious to us. There's only one thing that's going to say that to everybody else. You are with us. Your presence with us. And then the whole world will know. We are your people. And they are not. Brethren, grace is distinguishing. God has a people. He separates them from others by His grace. He did it with Noah. He did it with Moses. He did it with the nation of Israel, even though many of them were unregenerate. Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers, God is faithful. God has promised to bring a Savior. And He said, I didn't choose you because of this or that, but because I set my love upon you. Now the word grace is not here, but this is a clear declaration of God's grace. I didn't choose you because there were more. uh, You were a great nation. There were more to you than anyone else. I didn't choose you for any other reason than that I set my love upon you. Grace is God's choice set upon those He distinguishes. And that distinguishing mark is His presence with them. Deuteronomy 9.4 Speak not thou in thine heart. God is reproving Israel here. He says, After that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, those that live in the land that He's about to give them, He says, Speak thou not in thine heart, after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess the land. Follow what he's saying? He's saying, Don't go in the land and say, Because I'm better than the people that were there before me. That's why God's putting me here. My righteousness. He says, No. Don't say that. He says, But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. 
not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. And that's, again, as strong as it can be. Those that, abs- that actually deserve His wrath are experiencing His mercy. Why? Because God has a, an eternal purpose. He has promised to work it out. And this was His purpose to do so through this stiff-necked people at that time. He was showing them His grace. It wasn't for their righteousness. It wasn't for their uh, their multitude. It was because God set His love upon them according to His purpose and because He had promised the fathers. So the Old Testament is very clearly built on the, the, the idea, the concept of God's grace. The existence of Israel is because of God's grace. We could spend a very long time on that, but let's go to the New Testament. Quite obviously, the place I'll go in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Who else to be a better example of the grace of the living God? As the Word of God says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. It is right and it is good for God's people to give testimony to the saving grace of God. Paul did so, and the Lord recorded it in several places for us. Paul gave his testimony of the saving grace of Christ to him. Acts chapter 26, verse 4. Paul stands before King Agrippa and says, My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Brethren, he's giving testimony to the fact that the people of Israel... And he's not saying that absolutely every individual, but he's saying that the nation had a hope. What was that hope? The seed of the woman. And that they day and night waited upon that hope. And Paul says, now I'm standing before you because that hope has been realized. God in His grace and in His mercy has brought a Savior. Listen to what he says. He says, for which Hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punish them oft in every synagogue and compel them to blaspheme. 
And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the high priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. But then do you see how he's begun his testimony? He says, look at all the religion I had. And I was standing in wait of the hope that our people had. And I was so zealous in my religion that I added my voice to the death of God, of, of, those, of those saints of God who worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ. I was in the very midst of persecuting Christ's people when this happened to me. Above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Brethren, where could we hear a more startling declaration of the grace of God? You are touching me when you touch my people. And what did he announce? I'm here to crush you into the dust and cast you into hell? No. He came and claimed the enemy of his people for his own. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee. Brethren, that's the heart of grace. God coming to sinners. His way, His time. I'm not saying that we must have Paul's experience in the particulars to be saved. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that everyone that is saved is saved in the manner that Paul is saved. That is, Christ comes to the sinner. The grace of God. The grace of God. He says, I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee. Listen, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Were the Gentiles calling on Christ? Were the Gentiles having services and walking aisles and praying prayers and casting their vote for God? Jesus Christ said, I'm going to save you. And then I'm going to give you my message. I'm going to teach you personally. And then I'm going to send you to them as my representative with my message of grace to call sinners unto me. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Brethren, God comes to sinners. As we said last week, salvation is of the Lord. It doesn't begin with men. It is not initiated by men. It is not helped by men. When God brings a minister, raises up uh, a, a pastor, an elder, an evangelist, a teacher, uh, a, a layman, when He raises them up and sends them with His Word, it is Him going to sinners, bringing His truth, calling men to repent of their sins and come to Him. And in His mercy and His grace, He sends His Spirit, as we'll see, to move men's hearts, to bring them to believe that very truth. This is grace. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Oh, we've heard Paul's conversion, and we'll consider his theology for just a minute. Paul's theology. I've said it, of course, in that one verse. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, the salvation by grace, is, uh, through faith, it's not of yourselves. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not only was Paul saved by grace, Jesus Christ raised him up, gifted him, empowered him and sent him forth to proclaim the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament writings clearly give it form and structure. Grace is the very heart of Pauline theology. He ought to know. He was persecuting the people of God when Christ opened his eyes. If we read the Acts of the Apostles and the Pauline Epistles carefully, we must observe this. The idea of God saving men by grace apart from works was the idea that Paul declared and defended against numerous enemies. You see, this is what Gill was getting at. He's saying, you, sir, and his name was Dr. Whitby, are accusing me and those of us who believe what we believe to be holding to something novel or something new or something that's just our party spirit. He says, but you know, as you make your appeal to the church fathers, we don't have to appeal to the church fathers. We go to the prophets and we go to Jesus Christ and we go to the apostles. And having done that, we say, this is what we believe they're saying. And oh, we want to find the footsteps of what we believe among the church fathers. But if they're not there, we can only agree that the church fathers left the truth so early. The New Testament doctrine is that God saves sinners. They don't save themselves. They don't help God save them. He saves sinners by His grace. And this is what Paul was constantly having to wrestle with. Brethren, Israel constantly kept falling into idolatry 
falling away from the promise and the hope which they were given. They weren't saved because they, because they kept the law. They were to believe their God as Father Abraham did. That faith was counted for righteousness. Believe the promise of their God and then obey Him in love. That principle has not changed. The covenants have changed. But the principle underlying both of them has not changed. God saved by grace in the Old Testament. God saved by by grace in the New Testament. And whereas the the nation of Israel was constantly falling away into idolatry and in a man-centered religion, so the Apostle Paul, after he began to preach the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, found among his own kinsmen those that fiercely attacked him and at times would even leave him for dead. This is a serious battle, brethren. This is not just a, well, my theology, your theology. Who is God? And what has He done to save sinners? John Calvin didn't write this. Enlightened, regenerated, and personally taught by Christ, Paul preached the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Now, the epistles to Rome and to Galatia bear this out. What was going on there? He had to go back over and over and say, it is by grace through faith. Brethren, Paul even had to rebuke the apostle Peter. He said, well, wasn't that just something about dinner? No! The very principle of his separating from the Gentiles was declaring war against the gospel. And he said, Peter, you're banding up with folks who think they're right because they've been circumcised. You're denying the gospel that you've been preaching to these Gentiles. You've been eating with them right up to this moment. And now you've been intimidating to denying the very gospel you love and preach. Brethren, Paul had to fight these doctrinal issues as we find them addressed in the Philippian and the Colossian letters as well. What does this all mean? It means what I've been saying since last week. The struggle between God-centered religion and man-centered religion figures prominently throughout the New Testament as well as the Old. This is an ages-old issue, but framed at different times with different questions being the heart and soul of the, the war at that time and with a progressive revelation from the Word of God and the works of God through His Spirit and Word in history. What we will be looking at for the next few months, and uh, as we look at in the next uh, tonight, with what time we have left in, in the, the weeks ahead, as we look into this historical survey, we want to realize, brethren, this is vital. 
we want to realize that our heart's desire is to exalt the Lord Jesus according to His doctrine. And I want to frame that battle and introduce you to or review you to some of those battles throughout history so that you might see that we're simply an extension of what's been going on for a very long time. We're not new. We're not novel. We're standing for God's glory and His grace in Jesus Christ. This is the light we have. If He will give us greater, wonderful, I'm thrilled as I can be with what He's let us see. Well, let's see. Brethren, I think that I'm going to cut short what I was going to do. I'm only going to uh, hit a couple of more points. And then we'll close for this evening. I want these to be clear and sharp. And uh, we'll pick up here. So it probably is going to be three weeks. But let me just say these following things. Having made the arguments that I just have, there are those who point to the early church fathers, those who were, you know, very close to the time of Christ and the apostles, that say, we don't see your system in that group of people. And, of course, we stand in the argument that Gil made. If we find it in the prophets and the apostles in Christ, it doesn't matter where first church fathers were. It is quite clear from the Word of God, by the epistle to the Romans, the epistle to the Galatians, by the epistle to the Corinthians, that the early church was instantly assaulted, and by John's epistle, that the the early churches were instantly assaulted with doctrinal issues. And there were tremendous battles going on. That is the womb out of which the following four things I'm going to say come. Number one, why didn't they have this doctrine of grace system, so to speak, that we presently believe? Well, I will put it in these terms. There are at least four reasons why the church in its infancy did not have a developed understanding of the doctrine of God's grace. This is the first principle. It is crucial that we understand that corruptions and doctrine, excuse me, that corruptions in doctrine and in practice invaded the early churches. Read Galatia. Oh, foolish Galatians! Who hath bewitched you? I clearly set forth Christ among you. Who's put a spell on you to drive you away from the truth? That's as early as it gets, brethren. Much of the New Testament was clearly written to correct a virtual flood of false teachers and their perverse doctrines during the period of the apostles. The fledgling bride of Christ was immediately assailed by corrupt men and seduced by doctrines of devils. Read Paul, read John, and hear their words over and over. Let us hear Paul, the apostle of grace, 
For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, brethren, here's a man filled with the Holy Spirit. When I'm gone, they're going to come in like wolves into the church of Jesus Christ. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Brethren, this is a solemn testimony that history bears out. The early church was besieged with false doctrine. And there was no, quote, system of doctrine then. Paul the Apostle went. He taught. He established the churches. He instructed them in the light that he had. But there was no one sitting down writing a nice systematic theology with proof texts. That wasn't happening. That's one of the reasons you don't find five doctrines called the doctrine of grace laid out then. Secondly, in the first four centuries, the Christian churches were embroiled in battles over the nature of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Brethren, Satan, with all of his wicked, devilish might, came against the church in its infancy and did everything it could to undermine who God is. Remember the questions I said we're going to be establishing through this study. Brethren, none of us can imagine uh, four to five hundred years of theological debate. At our oldest age, we might make it to 80 or 90, but that's, that's it. Listen carefully. Until these critical doctrines were hammered out, little progress could be made toward other theological issues. I mean, after all, if we're not sure who Christ is, what's the purpose about talking about attending doctrines for the present? We've got to know who God is. We've got to know who Christ is and what He's done to save His people. But we've got to have Him first. Or it won't do us any good to talk about what He's done to save his people. Do you understand this? We, we need to see this. The definitions of the Trinity and the Incarnation produced during the first five, uh, the first controversies are vital to Christianity and they're still with us today. However, because those early battles waged so intensely over those, those foundational doctrines, other matters were not so carefully developed at the time. Obviously, in the heat of disputation and controversy, the issues which are most vehemently attacked should receive the greatest attention. And what's more important to us than the Godhead and Christ the Son? And that's where, where the early church was. They exalted Christ and His Word. But they were wrestling and struggling through His Word, sometimes wrestling for weeks and months over one letter. In a word. 
Some people would say that's nitpicking. No, it made the difference between a Christ who was not created and one who was. We need to understand that in those days the body of Christ did recognize the issue of man's will, the evil consequences of the fall, and man's need of divine grace for salvation. So development of these doctrines, especially the relationship between God's grace and man's will, waited for later controversies. They had doctrines regarding these things. They talked about man's will, and they talked about predestination, and they talked about election and some of these other items. But it wasn't developed. And so you can read one writer, and he sounds like he's in one camp. You can read him a little later, and he sounds like he's in the other camp. It wasn't a developed thought yet, because they were waging so many other battles. Thirdly, during that time, some Christian writers tended to emphasize certain aspects of doctrine differently. Writers in the Eastern and the Western churches often emphasized the doctrine of of God's grace and man's will in different ways. They didn't have printing presses at the time. So they didn't have printing presses rolling off copies of Arthur Pink's The Sovereignty of God or those types of of works. Brethren, many people didn't even have copies of the Scriptures for themselves. They would come to the assembly just to hear the Word of God and, and, and a copy of one of the letters from the Apostles. They weren't coming, you know, with their their papyri and their stylus and, you know, coming and, and having nice three-point sermons. <laughs> it wasn't happening. They were coming and expounding the Word of God as God gave them light, and it was a growing, developing thing. These particular doctrines at that time were not then the subject of strict examination or defense. Therefore, those who wrote about them often were not careful in the way they expressed them. Because they lacked a more fully developed understanding of these doctrines, some of the early fathers can be and have been quoted on both sides of the argument. Same guy. But you see, we're trying to make our 21st century thinking squeeze into what was going on to them in those centuries. That's a mistake. We have to understand something about what they were wrestling through and what they understood and what they dealt with. Fourthly, and lastly for this evening, many early Christian leaders had been influenced by the pagan Greek thought of their day. Because of the fall, man is naturally and sinfully self-centered. Man-centered. That's what we are by nature. And we like to think of ourselves as free agents. Nobody tells us what to do. We live the way we want to live. We do what we want to do. You don't tell me what to do. And if you're big enough to make me do what I don't want to do, I'll complain when you're not looking. Right? This is the way we are. Now, Reflecting on this, Greek philosophy was man-centered. Many of these early church fathers were men that had been Greeks or completely deluged in Greek thought. 
just like we today are completely deluged in modern democratic humanistic thought. And it affects the way we understand the Bible. That is why we must be corrected by the Bible, not correct the Bible by our thinking. We must submit our hearts and minds to God's sovereign word. It rules. May God help us as we attempt to handle His word at any time. See, during this period, some Christian writers began to view salvation as something possible with God's help. Does that sound familiar? Jesus Christ died to make something possible. God's done all He can do. Now the rest is up to you. Now where did that come from? It came from their man-centered thinking. They weren't using that terminology then, but it's the same thought. Yes, God saves uh, with our help a little bit. If man cooperated with God by willingly acknowledging his need and expressing his faith, he could be saved. Brethren, that came out of thousands of pulpits this last Sunday. The following statements, which we will look at next week, all begin to show us how these things were developing in those days. The Christians were being persecuted. Many of them were hiding. You you can't sit down and, and write nice, long, fabulous, systematic theologies when you don't know if tomorrow you're going to be scalded to death. And, and when the churches were meeting, when the bishops were meeting, very often there were tremendous difficulties. You couldn't get in an airplane and fly over to a conference. It took you know, weeks and months sometimes to, to, to get to a gathering. And then there would be great wrestling. As there would be this understanding of this portion of Scripture and, and uh, that understanding of this portion of Scripture. Brethren, it was a slow, long, tedious, difficult process. So with all of these things, and others, there was no developed system of understanding the doctrine of grace at that time. It wasn't the theological issue. Not that it was never spoken of, because you can read the early church fathers, and you will find them speaking of predestination. Now, why did they talk about predestination? Because it's in the Bible! There was no John Calvin in the first century. There was a Paul! who said, having been predestinated, a word chosen and inspired by the Holy Spirit. While we love Mr. Calvin's labors, we don't wear his name because he didn't die for us. So, it is good for the heart It is good for the soul. It is good for us that we be established with grace. This is what was told us all the way back in the epistle to the Hebrews, to the very first Christians. Don't be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, but be established in grace. God willing, 
after we look at this historical unfolding of these things, we will then begin to take the scriptures verse by verse and and chapter by chapter and attempt to see why these were eventually brought together in doctrinal heads. But the point was always within theological warfare. Brethren, until the truth gets challenged, many times we're sloppy about what we believe. And then when when, uh, another doctrine comes that, that takes away from the glory of the truth, all of a sudden we have to go back to the Scriptures and say, what is it saying? What is it teaching us? Brethren, may we learn not to have to just wait for polemics. May we learn while we can to be established in grace. That's going to be right here in the pages of His Word. Fill your heart and mind with Christ and His Holy Word. Plead with Him to teach you. I think that you will see why, in the days ahead, why this is such an issue. And why it will be an issue until the Lord returns. But may we learn in it. May we be gracious in what the Lord teaches us. And may we be teachable under the head of the church and His precious Word. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words then are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.